Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Emerging Pod, where we get emerging people into emerging careers. Today's guest is Eric Matisson Dreyfus. Eric started his career in the finance sector as a quant before catching the entrepreneurial bug in 2015. Since then, he has founded startups in finance, recruitment, and he's currently CEO of Infer, which he founded in July 2022. Eric, good to have you with us. Thank you. Good to have. Uh, thank you for having me. That's how you say it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so let's get straight to it, Eric. How do, how does one choose to study elliptic curve cryptography <laughs> and algebraic topology? To go all the way back. Um, how does one start that? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I like. I can say why I went that way. In why I did mathematics. I did mathematics. Um, because it was the easiest thing to study at university. So I'll prefix that with, uh, I was not a particular interested student. I, I didn't really like school when I went to school. I liked sports and that was what I was going to do. Um, but my mom had this rule that you could only stay at her house if you studied. So I had to, like in, in Denmark <laughs> at 15, you have to, like you do nine years of school in Denmark. So at 15, you're out. But then you had to go like A-levels, which are called gymnasium, or you could do a vocational thing. And I was like, I'm going to do a vocational thing. I don't like this thing called school. Uh, she's like, that's fine. But then you have to leave the house. I was like, oh, that's fine. So I'm going to do this gymnasium thing. And then I got to 18 or 19. And and it was the same thing again. I was like, I don't like to do this anymore. Actually, so then she said, fine. Then you have to leave the house. But also in Denmark, there was the draft. So I had to go to the army. So in Denmark, I could either join the army at that point or I could go to university. And also my mom was kicking me out. So I was like, this university thing isn't too bad. And the third thing is in Denmark, you get paid, you get paid to go to university. So university is free and you get, everyone gets a scholarship, which at the time was five, 600 pounds a month to like pay for housing and food, etc. So I was like, this is great. I go to this thing. They'll pay me money. I don't have to go to the army. I can stay at home. Sorted. Uh, I wanted to study maybe history or journalism, uh, but at the time, no one was going into that. But I had terrible grades because I was kicked out of school several times. But like I was at terrible grades. I couldn't get into anything. But there was no uh, no grading requirement for mathematics. You just had to pass your exams. <laughs> and so, and so in Denmark, it's this weird system. But yeah, so I was like, I just passed my, like I, I got my degree, my A-levels, but just on average, like some of them, things I failed some of them I I passed but I, so the average was okay and all they wanted to do that you've sort of on average passed your your A-levels so I was like I've done that this is one of the things I can do and I kind of like math anyway so I ended up in math at university but I would have preferred to study like journalism my dad was a journalist I would have done that or history because I like history but I just couldn't didn't have the grades um so yeah so that's why I went with math then I found that I really liked it. Uh, but it took me about six months, I think, or so at university uh, to really get into it. At first, I was just not attending. I was just like, whatever, this thing. Um, and then slowly, I think the first exams, you had to go to exams after about six months. And I failed. But in, in prepping for my six-month exams, I actually started liking it because I was forced to come on time and read this book because I knew it was going to be a very, it's an oral exam in Denmark. And it's going to, so it's humiliating as well. You're spending half an hour in front of the professor. <laughs> they're asking you questions. If you don't know what you're doing, it's not a nice experience. And also anyone can attend an exam. So you often have an audience of your fellow students there. So it's like, it's double. Like you're in front of oh, 10 of your, oh, wow. your, like your friends <laughs> and they're just like grilling you and you just, and you can't escape. Like it has to last for ha half an hour. So you're just there going like, I, I don't know. I also don't know this one. And then it's like, so it's not a nice experience. Um, if you don't know what you're doing, I kind of, I realized as I was preparing, I am going to, it's going to be horrible. So I prepared, I still failed, but it was like just about, uh, but in prepping, I realized I wanted to do it. So I actually redid my first year. I said, okay, this is actually for me. I redid my first year. And then when I came back, I redid it and started all over. I did well. Like now I was in, I was doing all my stuff. I was, I turned out to be very good at it. Yeah, so that's how I ended up. In literature cryptography, I was doing pure mass. 
very, very deep stuff, like topology things. That was what I was into. And elliptic curves is mathematically very deep. So you're in algebraic topology, but elliptic curves is also cryptography. So it actually has an application. Uh, like uh, at the time, some of the some of the what today would be AI, but some of the coolest stuff was going on in cryptography in in, in sort of in the mathematical part of of of, um, of computer science or the computer science part of mathematics. Uh, and there was lots going on, you know, mm-hmm. credit cards at the time, RSA was relatively all, but it was really rolling out at the time, like online transactions, all this stuff, like PayPal, etc. So yeah, I thought that's the cool thing. I want to do that. So I did, did that for my for my for my bachelor's at the time. Yeah. So coincidence. Oh, that's pretty cool. The, <laughs> d- definitely sounds like uh, you've uh, you always had a checklist and uh, went for for the thing that always checked everything. Uh, I was curious about the exam you mentioned. Uh, other students can attend. So it's interesting, how is, or I don't know if you remember much, how is the exam structured in the way where you could watch other students go through the exam, but it wouldn't necessarily, I guess, give you answers for when it's your turn? Uh, so the, the way it typically works is there's, let's say, classes are quite small in like mathematics, so it'd be 20 or 30 people in a class, right, in pure mathematics. So the, the, the professor will have 20 to 30 topics that he wants to examine. So... And then basically what you got, you come in and it's a lottery. You pick like, they do it in different ways. Sometimes you, they say, pick a card. And you pick a card and they'll match it and be like, so you get topic number eight and then they'll tell you what it is. And then, uh, so, so you, like only one student gets one topic. Like, so it's unique in that way. So if you've seen someone else do in the mm-hmm. exam, it's not what you're going to be examined. And it'll be random. You don't know what the exam topic is until you pick the, the, the card. Then once you pick the card, in some exams, you then start right there. It's, they're like, okay, go, start talking about it. In some other exams, they'll give you half an hour to prep. So you go into your own, like a separate room, you sit there for half an hour, you get to like do your notes. Uh, you can bring, sometimes you can bring material, sometimes you can't, depends on the topic. Um, and then you prep like your, 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 your 15 minute spiel that you're going to go and do. So then you come in, you get like a 15 minute overview of the topic, and then they'll do spend 15 minutes asking you questions, basically. Or sometimes they'll just interrupt and go, reset that. Why is that? Why is that? And often the topic will just be like a part of a theory, and you have to do the proof, for example. So it's like this famous theorem, mm. do part one of the proof, and then that's your, and then explain it. Um, so yeah, so it's, uh, it's, so then basically anyone can come in. They'll say, okay, we're now examining Eric Matheson and Dreyfus. Everyone who wants to come in and then people outside and they come in and they sit in the, it's like an auditorium and then you just start. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a special way. I don't know. It's good and bad. I think it's, it's, if you're not, if you're a little bit, um, not that confident, it can be a bit daunting and a lot of people feel like a lot of pressure and, might be actually pretty good at the topic, but they crack under the pressure of like public speaking. Uh, especially if there'll be like mm. a couple of sixty-year-old mm. professors just sitting there drinking coffee, like looking at you, and they're like, "Okay, I don't know, I don't know." <laughs> and especially when it starts going bad, it often like escalates because you're like getting nervous, and they're like asking you more questions, and you're like, "I don't know, I don't know, I just want to run away." So, um, yeah, <laughs> special type of examination. Yeah, in Romania for the baccalaureate, which is the exam we took at the end of high school, uh, we also had a similar kind of system. We had, I think, six or seven exams, three of which were oral. And you study your whole life just for that point in time where you, you're in front of everyone and you need to make sure you pick a, a random ticket, a random number yeah. uh, with, with the subject, and you need to say everything that you know about it. So it is, it is quite nerve-wracking. Um, but I suppose it does assess your ability to be calm under pressure and remember things and communicate clearly. So I can see the, I can see the reason for that. Um, I can also relate with your uh, lack of enthusiasm for formal education, let's call it. Um, was there, and similarly, when I did my master's, was, there was a point in time where I, all of a sudden I was just very interested in what I was studying because the methodology changed. So we were doing a lot more practical case studies. And then also I had a professor um, our program director who was just really good at teaching. So he was very interesting and he would bring in 
all sorts of analogies and weird kind of unrelated, seemingly unrelated topics to illustrate a point that made perfect sense with what we were uh, studying. Did you have that as well? Did you have any specific professors that kind of elicited your curiosity and triggered you to get more into it? Not really. I think it's just, a, for me, it's just a style of um, university. Uh, it, mm -hmm. You are completely independent, like, because they're doing these exams, right? There's no requirement of showing up. In Denmark, it's like, you don't have to attend anything. You have to hand in some um, some piece of coursework during the year. And if those pieces of coursework are you pass, then you can go to the exam. And then it's all up to the exam, which might be an oral exam, right? So it's completely on you and they really don't care about you. And the professors kind of make it obvious that they have no, they don't care about you, right? Which kind of spoke to me. It's like, it's on me. <laughs> they're not gonna, they're not gonna, like, if I don't like feel like doing something today, mm -hmm. no one's gonna bother me. And at the same time, it's up to me, it's my responsibility to get it done and I have to show up to the exam and be good at it. And so there's no, mm -hmm. both ways. There was like no more parenting. If they were in school up until then, they were like, oh, you have to sit down now for eight hours and you have to do these things. Uh, and, that's, and at the same time, I could, I was also not held back. I could do whatever I wanted to do. Um, so I thought that was, yeah. and I'm quite competitive. So there's also a competitive edge to it. I oh. wanted to be the best. And I was, I could do that. It was like competition, right? Like when you do sports, no one's going to like the competitive sports be like, oh, let you know, they're not, they're not really parenting you, right? If you fail, you fail. Yeah. And that's how it is. And no one is like, and it felt the same way. They were just you know, throwing you into deep end, you know, single swim. Um, some of the teachers, especially like, I remember there's a course called Algebra 1. And he was kind of proud of having about 80% fail rate in his exam, right? <laughs> like one of the top exams. And he was just like, yeah, that's how it is. Like, and I'm not going to lower the standard, by the way. And you better study hard, otherwise I'm going to fail you. And I don't, and it was often expected that you should go three times to the exam before you passed it, right? Um so I like that. That kind no. of, for some reason spoke to me. I just felt like, all right, this is my kind of environment. I'll, I'll, I'll I can work here. Just out of curiosity, what sports did you play? Sports, uh, every sport. So I would uh, <laughs> again. I didn't do much school, so I would do football, handball, competitive running, basketball, any badminton, anything I could do. I would typically do three, four hours of sport a day. I think when I was young, it was. All I did, like after school, it was just sports, and I'll go to bed. So, no homework. So then, was that the 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 competitive spirit that then drew you into investment uh, banking after you graduated, uh, or how did you choose that first job? Uh, very honestly, money. So I was, I came to the UK for my PhD. I had no money. <laughs> I had a scholarship here, but I was also not great with money. So I never had any money. And I, like at the point in time, I lifted out of the sleeping bag in the university rooms. It's like in, the, in my university office and stuff because I just didn't have places to live. And, and then I graduated. I had, I had jobs in academia. I decided by then academia wasn't for me. I got quite disillusioned with how it worked. I was very idealistic, very idealistic. Like money doesn't matter. It's all about the science. And then I realized in academia, it's not necessarily about the science. It's about the politics. And then I got very like, okay, it's not for me. I could have continued postdocing. I didn't want to postdoc. Did a few interviews, had a couple of, I didn't interview with any banks because I was like banking, I'm not doing. I, um, I don't know why. I had a couple of job offers of more like sciencey stuff. Did one, two, interviews with banks uh happened to be with goldman and with bear stearns which were two of the biggest investment banks and the yeah I th actually i think it's the competitiveness the interview round was so competitive i, I just came in i was like yeah whatever is this and i think goldman at the time said you need to do i think for bear as well i had more than 10 interviews right you meet, need to meet more than 10 people oh, wow. for half an hour or something so you would come in and you do like an hour or something meeting two or three people then if they like you they'll call you back for like four or five hours and if they like you'll come back for another hour or something where you meet like the senior people maybe some more business and that whole like competitiveness and they made a big deal out of this is like 
this is the this is the top this is the and i i that and then then actually they came back with an offer i said i've already accepted another offer it's a tech company i think it was ocado and um and they said oh this is the money we're offering you and i was like okay so i'm gonna go to banking um and that was really <laughs> it for me at the time and then uh, i went there but i think there was a combination of money being very poor and getting money and then also that I, I did like the competitiveness that i could see there which was very like and it turned out to be like i think bay in particular was very very competitive kind of ruthless environment yeah mm-hmm. so you joined bear stearns in uh 2007 <laughs> probably yeah one of the last cohorts to, <laughs> to join yes <laughs> yes what did it feel uh, like what was what was that what were the first few months like and when did you find out so it was uh, i think it was may right and it was only a few months maybe five six months until the shit hit the fan what was what it was, was about that like yeah actually they went bust in 2008 um i think they went bust okay. in march or april 2008 and lehman was september that year mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so i had about a year there since i joined it was complete madness. Like, uh, it was, there was a, maybe it's a control. It was, there was a reason why some of this went bad. And, um, yeah, I think, uh, it was, it, it was weird. I mean, there was many things it's, for me. It's like, it's only a year, but it sort of feels a lot of my life because I think the, it was my first job. And I think my first mm-hmm. job was very, very intense. Like it was the intensest job I've ever had. Because I was new, I was thrown into the deep end. It was not like a grad program. It's just like, here's your seat. And it was like a trading floor. I didn't even know what to do on day one. They just sat there looking around. And then some, some person would come up and hey, hey, what are you doing? Like, I don't know. Are you my boss? I don't know what's going on here. Um, and it was, it felt like that. I had, I didn't know anything about banking. I didn't really know what they did. Right. Uh, I, for some reason, thought that they were going to be really into some of the research I've done on, uh, Trace monoidal categories in, like, in topology. They did not care about that at all. Um, and it was such a, for me, I was an academic. I thought we were actually going to do like research. And I was sitting there on the desk and there was like people just on day one, I remember screaming, shouting, swearing at each other. It was just like a guy next to me had like, I clearly remember there was a guy next to me who had like a, some sort of racing seat. I don't know if it was a Porsche or Ferrari or something, building to an office chair. And he was just like, it was 8.15 or something in the morning. He was just like screaming obscenities at the screens. And I was just like, I was used to academia. I was like, I, what's wrong with you people? Um, <laughs> and that was like the culture. It was just like boom, 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 boom all the time, right? Um, very, very high paced, very, very, uh, also very bullying and very like, you are like, it's single swim for everyone, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, but that was how they, I think it was very, pre-2008 any investment bank was like that. It was like ones that were particularly bad, Lehman, Bear, Goldman as well, Morgan Stanley, where that was the culture, very like, you know, you work till 10, you go out drinking, you're in the office by seven next morning, right? And that was kind of the culture of the whole thing, which is also why uh, mm. it wasn't run that well, uh, <laughs> necessarily. Because I don't think <laughs> really, I don't think that, it was a very group thing, right? And it's very like, uh, tribal and you're part of it or you're not and if people were cracking under the pressure everyone else piled on kind of thing right it's almost like uh, you know the worst elements of people but it generated money for them but I think then that kind of group thing and that kind of like and also that kind of pressure people on that meant that obviously people weren't really thinking long term or anything it was very short term thinking across the board um Anyway, it was interesting when they went past. It was a very weird because I'd only been there for for about a year, a bit less even. But it was so intense, and it ended like we went home on a Friday, and they said on a Thursday we had like a call, and they said everything's fine. We had thirty five billion dollars of cash in the bank. Don't worry about it. Friday. They were like, yeah, it's all good, it's all good. But the, but the, the trading desk was manic. I remember everyone's closing deals, and then we came in on Monday and they said, yeah, it's closed. <laughs> there's no more we don't like we're closed JP oh, Morgan wow. bought us like on Sunday because we Friday night they couldn't refinance and basically had to be bought over so it was like but but then and then everything was dead like there was nothing happened basically from that day on and and 
I was still there for like six months, winding down the business, but it was such a weird feeling of being like pumped every day. And then, and, and basically the feeling that this was your, like I had no other life than this bank. It was my life, right? Uh, it was my whole identity was being a Bear Stearns banker, wow. part of the gang. And we worked hard every day. We party hard, la, 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 la. And my weekends, I was a complete zombie because I was just like sleeping. And I'm back in, back in, back And then all of a sudden, I was, it was nothing, right? And the gang was not there anymore. And I was just like sitting at home. And I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> but yeah, it was it was interesting. Wow, that sounds like, a, an, like an insane first job to have. Are you still friends with people that used to work with you there? I see a few once in a while. I, I also, I was very junior. It's my first, I think there's still like more senior people that uh, uh, have like a network. I get invited to a poker tournament every so often. They still run a Bear Stearns poker tournament. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I haven't really attended the tournament. No, that's, that's, that's crazy. That's an insane story. Um, it seems like you very much strive and enjoy having your back against the wall so i think the next logical step for you is to definitely start your own business because there's no better way to have uh, your back against the wall uh so you founded apex financial tech uh how did that come about uh um how did that come about um i was working at standard chart at the time in a commodity trading part of the business um and was talking to a few people um, on the trading desk and he thought he's like, this risk management systems are lame, we can do better. Decided to start a business um, uh, around that time. Um, I, I, yeah, kind of just that, we can do better. There's, some, there's an opportunity to do better, uh, build something better. Um, had my friend colin who've just met previously met at another investment bank called diver join um and who's now i'm doing another business with and i've done another business with before so we've gone back um and yeah we set about trying to build a risk management system for corporates uh, which is very sort of uh on vogue today where risk management is very <laughs> front and center with a lot of companies failing because of lack of it but um yeah and, and we were <laughs> I did it for about a year or so. It's still going. Uh, my co-founder at the time still runs the company. Uh, have customers, uh, you know, making money. Uh, but after about a year, we kind of, um, I my interest was kind of veined in it. I didn't really believe that much in it anymore. Um, and yeah, we basically decided to split ways at that point. And he wanted he wanted to continue it. I wanted to do something else. Um, I think enterprise sales was like we were selling into very large enterprises. That's how you have to, those are the ones who who buy it. I was Mm -hmm. not really getting anywhere. And I thought, yeah, I still think the idea is valid. I think think some of the ideas we had were really good and they should be done. And maybe they're being done. I don't know the market, but but yeah, Mm -hmm. did that for about a year. Then, um, went to do something else. And that's why my interest made because we sort of my then co-founder next, my co-founder in that company, but then he, him and I then started a new company. Uh, Cohen uh, was thinking about doing some sort of AI. This was 2016. So AI was like a word that was just kind of appearing. Like, and for me, it was a bit odd because to me, it was just computational, what I call computational mathematics, like machine learning. It's been around for ages. But um mm-hmm. You no, know, it was come, becoming hipper, and the things were happening, especially in text analysis at the time. And we thought there's something here we can do. Um, we decided then to do a company. Well, bit of a story. He applied for an accelerator in Manchester called Ignite at the time, and he he applied. Just him, yeah. He, he just he had a he built like a recruitment CRM system. He was working in Hong Kong for Lehman and something. And he felt like the system he sold to a friend of his. And he applied with that into this Ignite accelerator and got past the first round. Like they were inviting me to an interview. And he was like, I need a co-founder. They don't like solo founders. And we've been talking about these ideas around AI and something with text. And he's like, do you want to do, do this together? I said, yeah, fine. So yeah, we went and joined this accelerator. 
um, and we decided to do AI in recruitment uh, as a as a pitch, which was sounded like a good idea. I don't even know what it. I don't think we really had an idea what it meant. It was something about analyzing CVs or maybe LinkedIn, or we don't know when we said when we like went. We just like there's something to do, and it's text, and it's like you know matching people to jobs. Um, yeah, and then we went on accelerator, did the company for about two years. Uh, was a very long slog. Uh, should have stopped it before, but we did. You know, we we hired people, we got some income. So I yeah. found it difficult to stop that. Um, like thinking back, we both said we should have stopped it a year earlier. Right? We should have done a year and then be like, yeah, it's not going anywhere. We're not getting any traction. But we, it was the first time we really gotten anything built with traction, right? And we, you know, we had customers, we had employees. We were like, no, 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 no. It's just like, we just need to do this other thing and this other thing. It was very, there was no long-term vision either. It was very scrambling all the time for us. Like because we were just trying, oh, what do we... What if we make a partnership with these guys, or like, uh, uh, what if we go and 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 like uh, build this feature or that feature, or like it was always like constantly like that. Um, uh, yeah, which never really worked out. And then after about two years, one day we decided, like it was literally like we sat in a Costa one day and we were the most depressed people ever. I, it's just been a grind, and we were both like, I wasn't sleeping because <laughs> we were running out of money. I wasn't sleeping; <laughs> he wasn't sleeping. We were both like, we just sat there. I said, "You know what? I feel like doing something else." And he was like, "Thank God! Thank God!" Like, I was so happy after that. <laughs> we were like, "Yes!" I remember walking out of that costume. We were just like laughing. We were like, "Oh yeah, it's finally over. This nightmare." <laughs> um, but yeah, that was that was, oh, that wow. was the second startup. Uh, what did you learn about CVs? Um, going through it, applying AI to CVs and just trying to build they're a product not, around them. Very, very bad indicator of success for a candidate. So obviously, yeah. our training data set was we were working with recruiters, so we had CVs, we had internal notes that the recruiter might have, and we had success. Right, we had the job spec. We had, we knew who went to what stage of the process, who got the job, who who got you know filtered out the stage two, stage one who got past screening, et cetera, and we had the CV. And the idea was that this would enable us to optimize and we could then just from the CV and maybe there's some LinkedIn stuff, you know, score who was going to be most likely to be succeed. Uh, and I think it turned out, like other than score understanding who can get past the initial CV filter, which is often just keyword mm -hmm. search, right? Um, yeah. We there was a very little indicator because of course because once you pass that you go to first round of interview it doesn't matter anymore what's in your CV right that's not the thing that gets you to the job right so we didn't know anything about recruitment but we learned and we learned that that's, that's not <laughs> like CV doesn't matter at all really um, and that's like yeah so I think that's that's basically what we learned there was a few indicators like obviously like you have to have the right but those are the things that get filtered out in first, like experience, some technologies, that kind of stuff. We we did perform better in, so we have a lot of data sets across a lot of stuff. Like tech was the one where we performed the best, but that was purely because tech has a lot of keywords, right? And you you know that certain keywords need mm -hmm. to be had to have a job, right? And the kind of, all of these have some good correlation with who gets the job. As soon as you want, went into other sectors, it was completely diffused, right? Because CVs are not about like hardcore keyword skills anymore, skills that can be summarized with just JavaScript. Like it was more like, you know, much more vague what is a good candidate. So um, other than they yeah. maybe have eight years experience. So yeah, that was a bad idea. I think people are doing it now again, but I think much more complicated. Also, the technologies weren't great, so it, was, it wasn't like what you could do today with GPT or something. Um, the models were much smaller. The, the things we built had to be much, much smaller um, and just really very, very simple, um, basically kind of complicated keyword stuff. Uh, yeah, just didn't work. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. I know from, from my own experience in university, um, I did, so I did a year internship, but before getting that internship, I found it really hard to even apply for a job. I actually remember at the end of second year, I had the opportunity to apply for an internship and I had to write a CV and I was, and I just realized 
what do I actually know what to do? I, I'm not really sure. I wouldn't be able to sell myself. Um, and after doing in my third year, I did a, an individual project and that's where I put in more thought into, okay, I want to learn this. Okay. I want to show that I can do that. And it was then a lot easier to get an internship. And after that internship, getting a job after I graduated was much easier because I knew, I knew what job I would go, my CV would go through because exactly. I was like, okay, I have the right keywords. I have the right experience. That's it. That, that's all I need to go. That's, that's what I need to have. Um, so you, you mentioned you've also hired people. Oh, sorry. Do you want to add something? No, no, no. Yeah. I was just going to talk about CVs. Please continue with the other thing. <laughs> yeah. No, no, go for it. Go for it. No, no. It's just, yeah. And you know, like CVs are so poor, as I said before, like you just, it is really just a filter. I think TVs are the worst things around because a lot of like, a lot of good people get filtered out by these like rudimentary it's like gaming you have to game this initial filter right if you game the initial filter then you actually start being evaluated and what you're good at and your actual skills you have to meet a person have a conversation and then that's kind of where you can connect right but a lot of people don't a lot of people write these really good they think good cvs but it's they get filtered out they're like too long it's like really it's almost like a pitch deck right it just has to be boom 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 it's minimal requirement to get through the filter and then you just need to understand what the filter is game it and then you can actually get to the real conversations where you can convince people you're the right candidate which i think is just not nice but i understand you can't interview 500 people for a job you have to have some sort of initial filter but mm -hmm. it's a yeah it's just a, a trick i think yeah yeah and then even as a student you tend to like I, for me, at least, I was very selective where I would send my CV, but most students, you probably just tend to spray and pray and just send your CV. Yeah. Everyone tells you you need to tailor it. Well, you just remove a keyword here and there, but realistically, you, you're probably sending the same CV to a job that you're not likely to get uh, with that CV. Um, yeah. So you mentioned then as uh, at Octavia, you've, you've, so you've, it's your first time building an AI product and, and you had to hire a team. Uh, what was that process like? Oh, but I mean, this was not that big a team. We also outsourced a large amount of development at the time. Um, we sort of mixed between, we also tried a, a, a lot at hiring very junior people. We didn't have a lot of money, so we were like hiring juniors, outsourcing. Um, yeah, it wasn't the best, the best scaling, I would say. Uh, we, we wasted a lot of energy on on that on like uh basically trying to add headcount that wasn't really yeah multiplying like it wasn't adding to our speed as a company more subtracting at that time uh yeah. i think uh yeah and go into more more into it but i think we we were very keen on being like we can hire you know um we, we, we want to hire juniors uh, and like upscale, et cetera. And, and we were just too early for that. Um, way too early for that. Uh, like we did have nowhere, like we were struggling months to month make pay. And well, at the end at least. And that is kind of like, yeah, it's not, it's, it's like an all hands, what do you say? Like, yeah, it's like all hands on deck, like, wartime kind of you know that was the feeling and that's not really the right environment to try and also like kill someone because no yeah. one is no junior is going to join and add value you shouldn't expect them to add any significant value in cost in terms of productivity for the first six nine maybe 12 months even depending on your business like you know how quickly you get up to speed but until then they you know not having them means you probably move faster because their time spent you have to energy you have to spend and what they give you back is that much and we just wasn't in that position uh so yeah that was that was a fail scale <laughs> failed hiring strategy i think in retrospect how did you determine when was that cutoff point where you thought okay uh, this is not gonna go anywhere we need to stop it because it's a very hard decision to, to make as a, as a founder because it's your baby and you're effectively just killing it I think, you know, as I was saying, just at the end, we were so worn down, Colin and I, 
like because we were struggling also making payroll and it was like really um and i felt at the time i barely slept like i would get up at three in the morning my now wife would be like what are you doing like three in the morning i'll be up because i just i would wake up in the middle of the night and like be stressed right because i felt the weight of having put two years into it my co-founder but also the people mm. working for us like and also like some sort of weird yeah i guess it's the two years you have some sort of expectation even if you don't really have you have people as well but then there's also just investors but then i don't know there's like some sort of you feel like there's a weight on you uh like some sort of expectation um mm-hmm. yeah responsibility to who i don't know maybe to investors maybe to employees but also sort of more generally but now i've spent so much time on it as a response i have to like continue this uh and but at the end that just like we were just so broken i don't think we can continue it much more like i wasn't sleeping i was stressed calling was the same uh yeah it was just not fun at all and for like maybe the last two three months and at the end we were just like yeah so it kind of came came to an end that way that we just went yeah i can't, I can't do this anymore and i think i was the f- uh, first one to say it but i think we were both thinking it. and then once it was said we were like okay yeah this is it this is it now now like it was amazing to have the weight taken off our shoulders like in a second and we we're like okay now it's just about winding down <laughs> and then we could organize that um i think everyone every failed founder i mean no one fails in that way you learn a lot but like everyone who closes the company i think they're all scales down that way the day you do it it's like an immense weight off your shoulder because you just feel like ah i don't need to do this anymore <laughs> i think everyone says that like it's when you get to a point where you're like i can't like just d- deal with it anymore yeah, I think yeah, part of I, that is the, the. Oh, sorry, go on. No, I was about to say yes. I, I, I like after that, I was craving like a proper job, <laughs> like a normal job. <laughs> I just want a job, <laughs> like a boss, a pay. That was what I wanted. Stability. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Full nights. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So then afterwards, you went to work at Street Bees. Yes. Um, and you led up their data science team? Yes. What did you do in that role, and what were some interesting projects you worked on at the time? Well, yeah, so they just, at the time, they just raised Series A, I think. They had um, mm-hmm. a data science, they had like a data science part of, sort of, part of the product, but it was, it was outsourced, um, and they wanted to bring it in-house. And they wanted to, um, yes, they need a head off for that and to build out the team and scale up the team and build like a continue evolving the product around AI. They want to make it to make it a central part of the problem, which is what spoke Mm -hmm. to me why I I went to join them. Um, which was, yeah, I I very much enjoyed that. Came in, hired, uh, build up their team, hired, you know, fair amount of people. Um, Worked there for I guess eighteen months or so. Um, on it was very large, very large clients, very enterprise clients on their side. I learned lots about the kind of stuff that they're after, the kind of value they add to things, which is, is paid off well in the latest venture. Um, but that that was kind of like in terms of like understanding that mindset. I never. It was the first time I was relatively close to sales other than trying to do it myself in previous companies right and like i did mm-hmm. sales in, in our previous company octavia did try the apex as well but before that, i had never done sales so i was just kind of trying to learn this was the first time i went into a being close to a commercial operation where people actually knew what they were doing and that i learned loads <laughs> from like because i didn't i was just making it up right i was doing cold calls and just being like oh that that was didn't work let me try something else i would never and also like, i never like really I was I was trying to learn myself on the go, and I think it was like proper strategic thinking about how your skills is open and so on. So I think that was my and it was my first exposure really to startup, other than once I'd done myself, uh, which was mm-hmm. tons of learnings I'd never like, um, and very much uh, sort of influenced by US VC thinking, like how do you run a scale up? Just things like OKRs. People are like oh, so let's join the, the like leadership 
OKR meeting. I didn't even know what OKR was. I was frantically Googling in my first OKR meeting. It's like an hour, Friday morning, 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock. It's like an hour OKR meeting with all the leaders of departments. And I'm just there going, I don't even know what this is. Like, okay, like, what is that? <laughs> and, and uh, but yeah, kind of learned that one. And then, um, yeah, the kind of project we did is like, it's, it's lots, lots of, you still do, like, it's a survey company or like a microsearch company, right? So they do have an app. It's quite unique by that app. They have, I think, X millions of people on this app now, but they pay to do surveys and take pictures, et cetera. And then they basically do, you do machine learning on that to try and get some insights out of it. What are the drivers of certain behaviors or et cetera? I'm sure now they're much more advanced. Um, and then that is the insights that you essentially sell to market to, to large enterprises. But done as a, like a piece of work, right? So someone will ask you to do a piece of work, you do a contract with them to go and do it. Um, like traditional market research, but powered by AI, which was very interesting. Again, I didn't know anything about market research. Um, quite fascinated by that at the time. Uh, so yeah, that was, was a good experience. I had Ryan, who's my co-founder today, uh, his first job. Hmm. Um, a few months in, uh, yeah, he's just come up. He's done his PhD. He's just finished. He sold me with a terrible story about about to become homeless. Uh, just, so the story is: I interviewed Ryan. He's doing great. He made. I gave him this. So what I would typically do is I have a call with someone, and this is my typical process for a data science job. I'll do a call with someone, right? Just I'll have a look at the CV. Look interesting. I do like half an hour call. Ask them a bit about the CV. It's just like checking: Are we gelling? Can they talk well about the CV? Right. Then um, I will. If all went well, maybe forty-five minutes. If it goes well, I'll send them a take-home task of some sort. But I'm actually. I always tell them I'm not. It's a, just a piece of data. I ask them like, this is what you could do with this data. I think in this case it was fraud detection. Here's a number of surveys. Could you figure out? But how would you address the? And I always say it's not so much about building the most complicated model. I'm I'm interested in how you think and how you approach a problem. And this is not. There's no right answer here. We're going to use this for you to come into the office to discuss it. Right. Uh, so people will do this for a weekend. They'll do some sort of solution. They'll send it to us. We'll have a read. They'll come into the office and we'll spend maybe 45 minutes on that. They'll present to us what they did and then we'll talk about it. Right. What I want to get to is, because we've read it already, we'll ask questions, why did you do that? So why did you do that? What else would you do, right? That's what I want to get into that discussion on a whiteboard. Because that's really when you get to see someone, do they think beyond the immediate skills they have, right? Are they, are they like, what you want in someone is, can they learn new things, right? And do they think abstractly mm -hmm. or are they just like memorizing things and are they narrow? Um, so that, I think that's a good way of testing that. I don't really, I hate take-home tasks generally myself if people ask me to do them, but definitely <laughs> I always prefix it with like, this is not about getting the right answer. It's not about spending the most amount of time. It's simply to have something that we can discuss in person, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's better than asking them to do coding on a whiteboard on the spot without any prep, which you can also do. You can bring people in, give them problems, say, okay, right, solve it for me now. True, yeah. Um, which is how we did in banking. Right? And then there's a little bit more putting people on spot. At least they get time. And it's up to them whether they want to spend half an hour or not. Anyway, Ryan did this great assignment, mm -hmm. came in, really did really well in the um in his explanation of it. Uh a bit weird, but that was great. Um I like that. At the end of it, uh, in his <laughs> delivery, at the end of it, we it was just me and him and us, and he he was like, I was like, Yeah, we're talking a little bit, you know. Thing. I like it, you know, we'd probably be interested and so on. And he said, you know what? I know you you I know you like me, I know you like to make an offer. I have other people that like to make me offers. But here's the thing, I have no money. <laughs> He's like, I live in an Airbnb, I'm gonna get kicked out in two weeks, I'm gonna be homeless. I don't wanna be homeless, you don't want me to be homeless. So if you pay me up front, I'll take your job. Uh, so I said, okay, I like this angle. So I think we paid him half of his first month salary or maybe his whole first month salary is something up front. And then he was like, awesome, I'll take the job. That was his negotiation. I thought this is brilliant. This, this, this guy is brilliant. Oh, 
yeah. Great sales, great sales tactic. Yeah. I would say uh, <laughs> for our listeners, don't try this at home. <laughs> No, 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 no. It was not. Or try it, maybe. It worked with me because I was like, oh, I love, I love the cheek of this guy. Like, he's just like, doesn't care. It's his first job. It's just like <laughs> asking me to pay him up front. It's like, it felt like there's like a scene from Goodwill Hunting. I don't know if you've seen where it's like, you know, after like asked for a retainer. It was like the same thing. I was like, what, what is he doing? Why is he saying these things? I like it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That was Ryan. And Ryan is today my co-founder. <laughs> Definitely sounds like co-founder material. So then you've recently uh, founded with Ryan Infer. Yeah. How did the idea come about? First of all, can you give a brief description into what Infer does and how, yes. did, you, how did you launch it? So we, um, I mean, the idea is that I give you the page. Like the the premise is that we believe that a lot of most businesses in the world don't really use their data very well, like internal data, right? So it's like um, what they capture from their sales funnels, their marketing, etc., right, is is well underused. And we thought we thought for a long time there's an opportunity there to to do better. So uh, I think every business I've been in, there's a, a lack of understanding often or not a very deep understanding of what your customers are actually doing, of your operations, et cetera. Like a lot of data is captured nowadays, but there's little done with it other than sort of that dashboarding and, and narrow insights. Things like what are the best leads? What are the best channels for leads? What are the, what are the like what drives churn? What drives renewal? What drives retention? All these things that we call product analytics, BI, RevOps, so the whole span, any internal data really. Um, and the idea, like we, it's, there are tools that we think the reason it's not done is because there's a lack of tools and lack of skills. A lot of people working in these areas are not necessarily PhDs or data scientists, and they don't need to be. That's our point. But there's a piece of tooling missing for them to be able to do this analysis. And that's the piece of tooling that we built. So we've, um, the whole premise was, can we build something that can enable any analyst, BI, RevOps, product to do this type of deeper analysis and there's a whole range of what that might be from customer segmentation to root cause analysis to even text analysis without the need of mm -hmm. being a data scientist hiring a data science team and we believe if we could give that easy tool that they can quickly iterate on and they can just hammer out analysis if we put that in tools of the analyst every business would be able to become much more efficient and, and have a huge gain in their operations. Um, and so that's what we set out to build. What we ended up building is an extension of SQL and the whole thing we call the inference layer, uh, which is where you can query your data layer with SQL, as you used to do, but now you have a number of commands that you can, from which you can build like any complex business use case or piece of business analysis you want to do. Um, yeah, that's kind of where where we set out. I think uh, both Ryan and I want to do something new. Um, like we, you know, after Street Beast, we both ended up in a test, which was also in the market research mm -hmm. space. I was the VP of data science analytics there. Ryan was the staff um, data scientist. Much bigger in terms of the teams there than a Street Beast. Um, but I think we both we both want to do our own. And we were both a little bit sick and tired of market research as well. I've done it for about four years. Uh, so we, and we felt like we wanted to get to do something, but do something that was no, yeah, we wanted to do something that addressed this problem that we were talking about, which was optimizing businesses. And then also that would play more to our strengths, we thought, than a lot of other things we could do. Um, so yeah, so we, we were both thinking about starting companies at the same time. Ryan had another idea that he was pursuing around um, generative AI and things in that space. Um, I had some other stuff I was thinking about in the financial space. Um, but yeah, over, over a drink one day, we decided maybe we should do, do this thing that we both thought was a great idea together. So yeah, <laughs> kind of how we came about. And then we, and... yeah. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask, what are some of the things that you've learned from the previous startups that you ran? Um, 
that you're applying to infer when it comes to maybe thinking about building a team or um, thinking about the sales model and how that sets the dynamics of the company? Uh, a lot. I think the entire, most of what we do is based on having done it wrong in the past and now doing it differently. Um, from building product very quickly, being very fast at, at um, pivoting. So like we've gone through, I th now we've hit a good business model. We seem to be doing well commercially, but this is, and we're only nine, 10 months in, but this is our third pivot in that space in the business model. Um, we wanted to, we got product out very quickly. We started the company. We started working on the company in July. By October, we had our first prototype out. And the idea was we need to prove uh, yeah, so like slightly bigger than that is that um, I think we both and I have particularly been burned on having these big visions, which I still have, but then thinking that you can kind of force that onto people. And uh, mm -hmm. now we are always building towards a big vision, but we are testing constantly. I, I think there's a, there's, People often are a little bit binary. They're either all about testing. So you need to test everything with uses or you can't do any little thing without massive amount of user research and A-B testing. What you end up doing is you end up doing like a random walk in your product with no direction and just end up building a monster of features because you're like, oh, let's do this. You have no vision. You have no idea of where it's all heading. And the other thing is where people have this big grand Steve Jobs vision Right. Don't listen to users, just build this thing and then go away and they build it for. <laughs> and a lot of startups fail this way, right? And we've done it in the past. And some of them, a few percent succeed, Figma, but a lot of other ones don't, where they go around mm -hmm. away for two, three years and they just build and build and build. And then they just launch. And in 99.9% .9 of the time, the launch fails, right? And then they have no sure. backup to that. There's been no testing, right? There's been no, and they're just like, and they're flat. It's just as much energy than anything else i think like if you have a team let's say you hire 10 people you you raise a fair amount of money you've worked for 18 24 months this particular business model this particular product to the detail it's perfect your vision you release it it fails at that point in time everyone's burned out right it's really difficult to recover that just like from the company's the team's perspective like okay right so that was a bad idea now let's spend another 18 months building this other thing so i think I wanted to, we need, there's like somewhere in between where you're constantly working towards the big vision. You think you understand what the vision is, how you will change the world and all this. But you you do it in steps and along the way, you're constantly testing that. So I want to put the first thing, we put the first thing out in October. We're constantly iterating on that. We're constantly interviewing people. Um, every, like right now we're working on a big thing that we think is going to be amazing and we're going to add on to the product, but we're doing like a, the smallest, absolutely smallest slice to start with that we know that people want. And then we can put that out. We can test with them. I, like I have drawings of what it needs to look like at the end, but it probably won't look like that. And that's fine because it will take a different journey along the way. I feel like you need to have a, an idea of what the end product will look like and then be open to as soon as you like put something, ship something quickly and then start moving and it might end up there but probably end up a bit like what you imagined but a little bit different formed into something different. Mm -hmm. so i think that's one of the things we learn a lot about commercial models as well um ask for money early yeah and that, try that, to that test makes sense. that right i think the best way to test if um if um yeah the best way to test if what you're doing has value is to ask someone to pay but that's what they always say they always say, oh, just ask for money. But like, there's also, a, I don't know, like, there's like a limit, right? You can't just like go, oh, give me 40K. What do you have? I don't know. I haven't built anything yet. It doesn't <laughs> make, like, there's, a, there's, a, there's something. And you have to something, especially if you're not. There's also a confidence level to you. I'm not, I'm a technical person. I'm, I cannot necessarily turn up and say, I need, I'm going to build something. Should give me 50K and just like bullshit it. Um, I have to have a little bit more like tangible thing to show people before I feel confident in that. But we are trying quite early to ask for for money. And, and that's also why we've sort of gone through a different couple of business models because we quickly realized, oh, this way and that approach or that particular go-to-market, we are we will we will struggle 
getting anyone to pay just because the persona we're targeting or the way we're targeting, the messaging we're putting out doesn't really mean the price point is never going to be more than X. And therefore, this is not a scalable business. Um, I think a lot about the bigger picture. Uh, this race leads to this race, leads to this race, leads to this race. Along the way, that means this ARR, this ARR, this ARR, this ARR. That ARR is built up by this sales motion, this sales motion, this sales. Constantly, I'm always adapting these plans, but I have, like right now, I have spreadsheets that shows exactly how we're going to raise money and scale the teams for the next 10 years until IPO. That's insane. That's never going to happen that way. But it gives me a, it actually helped me being conservative and grounded along the way. I am very keen on not raising money at a valuation that's unsustainable. You have to live up to your valuation yeah. every time. You have to prove your valuation every round run. And if you take whatever is offered, as most as much as is offered, that means you need to make up for that in the next round. You need to increase your ARR by that much more, right? And at some point, if you keep doing that round after round, you are faced with an insurmountable. It's like the 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 like uh, the gradient of the hill keeps being becoming steeper and steeper <laughs> because you're essentially pushing yeah. like you're pushing the hill forward. So it's just like now you still have to get up here. But now you have shorter time, shorter. And all of a sudden, you are like, oh, uh, ARR multiple is 60, and to raise the next round needs to be 50. You're not going to do that. You're just <laughs> not going to do that. Um, and then, so you're going to uh, you're going to fail at that. Um, so I'm very keen on like always thinking that long term and having that kind of plan, which means that I didn't have that in Octavia. We always thought very short term, any buck we can get in the next few months, which is a good good buck. <laughs> now we're like, no, because we know where we're heading and it's very long term. We can. We can we can do it a bit more, a bit more considered way. That's probably other lessons, but also the biggest lessons I think, just off the top of my head. No, it's that's absolutely correct. We've we've also dealt with it where, especially early on, where we we come in with our grand vision and our initial product was addressed to secondary schools, and it's probably the space where, at least when our dream met reality. It was very hard. We had to learn a lot. We had to like face a reality of also what, what it's like working in schools. And typically you don't, unless you work in the education sector, you don't necessarily think about everything that goes in there. Um, and then I've, I don't know how you feel compared to maybe Octavia when you're running Octavia is when you have that vision, but you also had that regular feedback cycle, it actually generates momentum where all the every time you make an iteration if it doesn't work you still learn something and you yes you didn't spend 18 months building it so the kind of there's the setback is not as strong and if anything you're more likely to embrace the learning that you've uh, the insight that you've learned from it yes i think it's almost think about it like get to failure as soon as possible <laughs> if we had moved faster at october we would have, we would have closed it less than a year in um because we didn't move fast enough, we didn't have enough iterations, we didn't have enough pivots, or like in terms of over the quick time, it took us two odd years to get there where we realized that this is not going to work. So um, almost try to disprove your idea as fast as possible. Hopefully it's like, it, it's hopefully it's not disproved and it's good, but uh, I think that's like a way, a mindset of thinking about it. Um, because I think it's, um, yeah, it's like it's time wasted as well for you. A lot of other things you could do, a lot of things everyone could do. So I think it's, um, yeah, just running it for the sake of running it isn't, isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah, wise words. Failure is going to set you free. Or something. Eric, uh, we've kind of gone above time. Uh, this this episode flew by. I'm not even sure where it went. Uh, but this has been a super fascinating conversation. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to to share, talk about, any closing thoughts you haven't mentioned? Uh, no, I think it was a big old ramble, like I usually do. I'm not sure there was any... Uh, <laughs> just like, yeah, just go with it. And... Uh, Try and fail as fast as possible. I think that's the main thing. 
that's the lesson I would give to the to the listener. And a very valuable one that um, I feel like we've learned quite a bit from this conversation. So thank you so much uh, for joining us. And hopefully we'll have you back soon. I feel like there's a lot more we can go into. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Eric. All right. Thanks, Eric.